I'm going to start my reflections this morning with a little quiz. What do all of these words have in common? Long hauler, hard pass, body shame, overshare, and shrinkflation. Anybody know? They're what? What are they? That's right. That's the first time anybody's ever gotten my questions right. <laughs> well, they... The only connection these words have to one another, and a couple hundred more since uh, last year, is as Barbara said, they are now considered authentic new words or expressions in English that are taking on a whole different meaning than they did five years ago, even. And they've made it into the authentic Oxford English Dictionary. For example, for example, long hauler, five years ago, was a cross-country trucker. Now it's officially someone who has the lingering effect of COVID. Hard pass is someone else's idea that you won't even consider. Language changes. Language evolves. There is no such thing as a static language. New concepts are given an identity, new words, new compound words, and new meanings sprout up to describe an idea. An easy example of this is in Hebrew, where they had to come up with a modern word for the word telephone, right? Because most Hebrew words have their roots biblically. There ain't no telephones in the Bible. Well, so the original word was a mouthful. Sach uh, rachok, uh, speak far. Can you answer the sach rachok? Didn't work. So the modern Hebrew word for telephone is telephone. We have a lot of good examples in English, too, and sometimes they are layered with politics or racism. Think of the whole Ebonics controversy in the 80s, even though that word itself was created in 1973. The controversy was about the linguistic style that many African-Americans use, especially with each other. Mostly white Americans thought it was just poor English. It isn't, and it wasn't. It's different English, that's all. In the same way that the English we speak today is vastly different than the English of Chaucer or Shakespeare, so Ebonics is simply a version of English that grew out of what many think is a standard marketplace English. It is probably truer that what was really at the root of that controversy was just basic American racism. Language is one of the main identifiers of, as of the other guy. That's why enemies kill each other. Oh, he speaks Ukrainian? Kill him. That's how many Russians act and think these days. These knee-jerk reactions are everywhere. And when we are knee-jerking all the time, we end up kicking each other. And that's exactly what happened, what's happening these days with the brand new word for 2022 that is going to be in the Oxford English Dictionary next year. And that phrase is cancel culture. Just to help you define what cancel culture is, I actually had to look for a definition. A social environment in which publicly boycotting or withdrawing support for people 
organizations and so forth, regarded as promoting socially unacceptable beliefs is a widespread practice. In other words, ignoring what you don't like. Cancel culture has been going on forever, but nowadays, of course, it has a label. In America, cancel culture was often associated with some kind of a blackmail. Do X or Y will happen. Take the story of Frederick Condon. You do not know who he is. Does anybody remember who he is, Frederick Condon? You don't know who he is, but he saved your life. He was in a car accident in 1961. And in those days, no seatbelts were built into cars. And the sharp edges of the car were all the rage. And in one tragic moment, the stylish car with no seatbelts and sharp edges turned Mr. Condon into a paraplegic for the rest of his life until he died in 2005. Condon had a friend, a young man named Ralph Nader, who is, of course, well-known. And as you might know, Nader began his lobbying for seatbelts becoming mandatory. So where's the cancel culture? The automobile companies hired prostitutes to try to entrap Nader in a compromising position because, <laughs> literally, because they didn't want the government telling them how to build safer cars. They hired private detectives to follow Nader around and photograph him with a, with a prostitute. It didn't work. At the end of the day, the story is pure poetry. Instead of embarrassing Nader, General Motors was forced to publicly admit what they had done and was forced to apologize. They even paid Nader $500,000 in 1965, and, um, which, which he founded Nader's Raiders, which became OSHA, became the Safe Drinking Water Act, and it even became the Freedom of Information Act. But still the lesson was clear. There was nothing that the auto industry would not do to shame someone. Cancel culture was alive and well, and it only failed in this case because Nader knew right away that he was being set up. These days, cancel culture has percolated down to, every, uh, to people doing everyday things. We are so hyper-connected. Anything that happens is instantly disseminated, and not just to our closest inner circle, but theoretically around the world in a second. There are countless examples where public censure in social media can mark somebody for life. And when that happens, there are all sorts of negative ramifications. A rabbi friend of mine noted that in some instances, a single stupid, insensitive, inappropriate comment or posting can derail a person's career and tarnish their life's accomplishments. It's not just people who are subject to condemnation, but it's also unpopular or unorthodox ideas, unacceptable political positions or opinions, anything which can be deemed to be beyond the pale or outside the realm of respectability. Now, having said that, I want to tell you that there's a positive side to cancel culture. Identifying those ideas that are so hateful, odious, deranged, violent, 
racist, misogynist, anti-gay, anti-LGBT, and all those need to be brought to the light, and everybody needs to know what that person is thinking. When the Charlottesville Unite the Right march took place a few years ago, and the Tiki Torch men and women were bearing the chant, Jews will not replace us, every one of them deserve to be canceled. Famous people are easy to cancel when they get caught. Obviously, there's a measure of schoidenfreude when Bill Cosby, who paraded around as, da- as America's perfect dad, uh, was convicted of sexual assault. And even though his conviction was overturned, everybody knows who he is, everybody knows what he said, and any biography of him will always include those chapters of his life and the life of his victims. The same is true with Harvey Weinstein. And recently, a T-shirt emblazoned with the slogan, proud Christian nationalist, is sold on certain websites. By the way, a proud Christian nationalist is another name for proud American fascist. As a Jew and as an American, I firmly believe that those people ought to be canceled. Yet, yet, canceling somebody because of something uh, has become something of a hobby for many of us. When we are out and about gossiping and telling stories about people and events that we know nothing about, we are engaging in a type of cancel culture where we think we are the arbiters of morality and the judges of somebody else's character, where often we have no idea what we're talking about. That kind of cancel culture was found in the Talmud. In fact, or was known to the Talmud, excuse me. In fact, it seems that everyday cancel culture, where judgments are made without any basic knowledge, uh, in fact, was so problematic to the second century Babylonians that the Talmud writes that that kind of defamation is akin to murder. And it is. Think of the story of a Canadian psychologist who was denied a research fellowship at Cambridge University of Divinity after somebody did some digging, looking for dirt, and found a picture of him standing beside someone wearing a T-shirt that had an offensive message. It was an old picture. Nobody knows if the doctor endorsed the idea on the t-shirt or even if he knew it was there in the first place but it didn't matter time to cancel and he was canceled and frankly in these days of photoshop anyone with a minimal skill can publish a picture of any any one of us doing anything anywhere that looks as real as anything as your five dollar kodak camera took in 1973 And with incomplete or misleading information comes the urge to cancel. I hope nobody digs up any of my pictures. uh, Although I had nice legs. The the irony of of canceling everyone you disagree with is that it is itself a form of cancel culture. We end up canceling honest debate, the honest exchange of ideas, opening our minds to different perspectives. In a recent survey, 85% of students reported that they have stopped themselves from expressing opinion on a sensitive topic 
to avoid offending another student, at least occasionally. And with 20% of those canceling, not saying anything, often. What they are identifying is the belief that my orthodoxy is right, everybody else is wrong, and there's no reason to even listen to anybody else, let alone offend anybody else, because I don't want to be the subject of cancel culture. And this, as I see it, is the root of the banned books movement, the anti-LGBT restrictions, and of course, Christian nationalism that so many politicians are so proud of. People may be comfortable with all of these restrictions, but they will have a change of heart when what they care about happens to be canceled. But even though, but even then, though, then it may be too late. Judaism loves disagreement. I love disagreeing. There is truth in the joke that where two Jews live, there are three opinions. We argue with ourselves. We talk to ourselves trying to figure out God, trying to figure out our tradition, trying to figure out what it means to be Jewish. We have sources for sure, but sources have a voice, not a veto. I have an adult pupil some time ago who studied Talmud with me, and uh, uh, he said something very instructive to me uh, that I'll never forget. Uh, he, he said during a particularly contentious discussion in the Talmud, he just said, just give me the answer to what the halakha is. Tell me what the Jewish law is already. And gently and lovingly, I had to explain that that's not at all how Jewish law works. In fact, I make the joke that Jews can never have a religious bumper sticker. And why not? Well, because if you put a bumper sticker with a Bible verse on your car, you're going to need another bumper sticker with the Rashi commentary, another bumper sticker with the super commentary, and then another bumper sticker with all the Midrashim that conflict with one another. And that's just the start. There's too many bumper stickers to fit on anyone's car. In other words, not one word, not one verse, not one tradition is forever. Like language, it's always evolving, whether we like it or not. The Bible says that iron sharpens iron. And there's one wonderful commentary that interprets it to mean that a good study partner brings out the best in the other when they argue and are open to each other's ideas and vice versa. The four words you will never hear in any authentic learning experience are don't ask that question. You'll never hear that in this synagogue. As a teacher, nothing makes me happier than having students argue with me, tell me I'm wrong, and then proving it to me. And I have many of my Teen Academy kids in here, so they can attest to that. And then they learn to listen as well, because if they respond to me, I respond to them. This is not confrontation. This is not war. This is not cancellation of my ideas or theirs. This is growth, and it is good. You want ignorant children? That's easy. Tell them you're right, and the argument is settled, and tell them not to bring it up again. In other words, cancel your children. You want independent, strong, and wise children? Respond to, the, respond to criticism with, that's interesting. Tell me more. Yes, they'll put you on the spot, but they will never accuse you of canceling them or who they are or what they believe. Ironically, these high holidays 
are days dedicated to cancellation. Only it is not God canceling us, but rather simply not paying attention to our shortcomings. For Jews, cancel culture ought to follow the ideas of these high holidays, especially Yom Kippur, the day literally of covering up. What are we covering up? We are covering up each other's mistakes, their missteps, their sins, their shortcomings. Instead of harping on them forever and pointing them out, um, any chance we get to turn something toward the better, the holier, that's what we ought to be doing. And God has shown us how to do this. How many times did God get frustrated with Jews in their 40-year schlep fest through the desert? Off the top of my head, I can think of six times. Six times that God wanted to destroy the Jewish people after having been so frustrated with us. That is the epitome of cancel culture. And yet it never happened. God ended up judging on the side of mercy. And on more than one occasion, God basically responds to Moses, you know, Moses, I never thought of it that way. You're right. In other words, God, who we say is omniscient and remembers everything, chose to let it go. And therein is the meaning of forgiveness. We ought to be able to do the same. And sometimes we do. And the results are quite amazing. Because what we allowed to happen was a process of teshuva, of repentance. Cancel culture kills repentance because cancel culture kills dialogue. The thinking goes, if I don't want to hear from you, I don't want to hear anything from you, good, bad, or indifferent. But when we stop canceling, things we once thought impossible become probable. You may know who Nick Cannon is. Anybody know who Nick Cannon is? Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> he's an actor. And for some people, he's a social influencer. Anyways, a couple of years ago, he said some really anti-Semitic stuff on his podcast. You know, the usual basic anti-Semitism. The Rothschild, centralized banking, the 13 families, the bloodlines that control everything, even in America. These, this, that was a quote from him. It would have been really easy to cancel him. And many outlets did. And for good reason, by the way. But just a couple of days after Cannon was all hyper-defensive about his words, about how the corporations are suppressing him and how he wouldn't be bullied, you would think that the Jewish world would be delighted that he got canceled. But remember, getting canceled may mean you're satisfied that somehow someone else will suffer, but the moment of cancellation, the door closes on education, inspiration, and reconciliation. And so, instead of canceling, the Simon Wiesenthal Center reached out to him and asked for an apology. But that's not all they did. They went further, not to cancel, but to teach and to learn. They opened a dialogue with Nick Cannon, and he was receptive. Maybe it was because of his education. I bet you didn't know he has a doctorate in divinity. In any event, they shared perspectives on Jewish texts and history and learned what we all know. The things he thought were based on fact turned out to be medieval and early 19th century propaganda. Cannon did not offer, it, offer some formulaic text of contrition written by his publicist. Rather, he spent a lot of time undoing the damage that he had caused. 
And I want to quote you from his apology because it was very widely respected. This is what he said. First and foremost, I extend my deepest and most uh, sincere apologies to my Jewish brothers and sisters for the hurtful and divisive words that came out of my mouth. They reinforced the worst stereotype of a proud and magnificent people, and I feel ashamed of the uninformed and naive place that these words came from. I used words and referenced literature I assumed to be factual to uplift my community. Instead, it turned out to be hateful propaganda and stereotypical rhetoric that pained another community. For this, I am deeply sorry. But now, together, we can write a new chapter of healing. That is Teshuvah. He did not cancel the Jews who reached out to him. And the Jews who reached out to him did not cancel him, nor were they canceled. Was he embarrassed? Sure. But embarrassment is a tiny price to pay for peace. These holidays are days of peace. Peace between each other, peace between us and God. It is a paradoxical day of remembering and forgetting at the same time. We remember each other's humanity as, as, as they remember ours. We cover up all of their mishagas, their sins, their shortcomings, their foibles, and even their ignorance. We give them a chance to learn, and at the same time, give ourselves the same chance. This is the time for teshuva, not a time to dwell on past grudges or relive perceived slights, not a time to cancel those in our lives who have offended us, but a time to give another the respect and honor that we ask for ourselves. Respect and honor. Let's remember that as we move into this new year, 5783. See, I didn't forget the 700 years this year. In fact, let that be our mantra for this year. Respect and honor. Shana Tova. Let's continue.